So we've been going through this journey, this series called Disciple. And the disciples have been on an incredible journey with Jesus. Each of them heard that call to follow him, which came at a cost to them. They left behind their old lives, sacrificing their careers as fishermen and tax collectors to follow Jesus. They've seen him do some amazing things. They've gone out on mission with him and done amazing things themselves. And they've walked with him, listening to his teaching firsthand. They haven't had the the second or third-hand teaching that we get on a Sunday morning. They've had it first-hand from Jesus. How much better must their teaching have been? Direct from Jesus. And so we've reached a critical point in the journey. We've reached the climax of Jesus' mission. The point where he's preparing to go to the cross to die for their salvation and for the salvation of everyone. This is perhaps the hardest point in the journey for Jesus. We know about when he was praying the night before he died and the agony he went through, committing to make that painful sacrifice for us. This is perhaps the time he needs his disciples the most to walk this journey with him. And most of you already know, but even if you don't already know the story, we can predict what's going to happen here. We hit crunch time. The disciples who've been invested in all this time, they've been growing, they've been learning. Jesus really needs them now. And they screw up. They mess up big time, some of them. So what we're going to look at today is this final bit. We're going to look at Luke chapter 22 and see what happens at the climax of this journey with the disciples. Let's start off just by reading Luke chapter 22. Now, is, is quite a long text we're looking at today, but there is so much in there that I don't want us to miss. So do persevere with following through. So Luke chapter 22 from verse 1. Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, 
he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also rose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, that's still Simon, he has two names, by the way. Before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up. 
and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else also saw him and said, You were also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you are talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The disciples were flawed, weren't they? They messed up at this critical moment. They messed up. What I want us to look at this morning is to consider just two of them through this passage we've just read and think about how they are flawed and what they do about that, how it turns out. couple of spoiler alerts. We're going to look at Judas and Peter. Peter turns out a bit better than Judas, in case you hadn't already worked that one out. So Peter's probably the one that we're aiming to be a little bit more like here. But we're also going to consider how we combat those flaws. And another spoiler alert, it's the Holy Spirit, okay? So if if you don't need to listen to anything else now, you can go home at this point. Be like Peter, have the Holy Spirit. Anyway, we're going to start off looking at Judas, but before we get into that, I just want us to consider how we approach it and consider the impact that what Judas was doing had on the others. It said in the passage that Jesus was telling them that one of them was going to betray him. And then they also go, who is it? Who is it? And that conversation then led to another conversation about which of them was going to be the greatest. And so, as we approach this, let's just keep in mind, we're going to look at Judas. We kind of look at him as being the one who, you know, is down there. He messed up. He was the one who betrayed Jesus. But let's not, as we look at him, do that comparison of, oh, I'm not going to be like him or that person. I'm going to be so much better because I'm good. And which of us is better? It's not about that. 
we look at this thinking, that could just as easily be me. I'm flawed too. I could just as easily make the mistakes that these guys did. So let's look at it humbly and see actually how can we learn and grow from it. So Judas. In verse 3, it jumps right in there and says, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. Satan entered Judas. And then he went to betray him. So, could we be poodling along, being a disciple, walking the walk, talking the talk, and then suddenly Satan leaps in and throws us off course? That doesn't feel good, does it? Not quite like that, I would say. Satan can't make you do anything without your permission. He has to ask permission to do anything, okay? He can't just jump in there. To understand how Judas has reached this point, we've got to track back a little bit in the story into one of the other Gospels, actually. In John chapter 12, um, we find the story of the woman who comes to worship Jesus, and she has that jar of really expensive perfume, and in her adoration of Jesus, she breaks open the flask over Jesus. Yeah? Do you remember the story? Quite a well-known one. And it says in John 12, chapter 4, at this event, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He's got a point. You know, I mean, surely we should use the money to save the poor rather than wasting it. Yeah, I mean, we can worship Jesus without the oil. Actually, that's not quite what his heart is in making that comment because the next verse tells us he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. What does that tell us about Judas's heart? You see, he, he was right there with the twelve, He'd been listening to all that teaching firsthand from Jesus. He'd seen all the amazing stuff Jesus had done. He'd been on the mission trips when Jesus sent the 12 out. He was there, we heard the other week about the feeding of the 5,000. He gathered up one of the baskets of leftover bread. He'd been there in all of it. And yet, what was in his heart didn't match up with what he was doing on the outside. The things he was saying didn't match up. So when he challenges this expensive perfume being given to worship Jesus, it's not because he's coming with a genuine concern for the poor. It's coming because actually he's perhaps trying to cover up a bit. Well, hang on, we should be more careful with our money because he knows that he's taking out of the pot And so I think that shows us that it's possible to be positioned among Jesus' disciples, to be listening to all the teaching, to be going through the motions of being a disciple, but actually 
to not have allowed God to change your heart, to be carrying still inside those little dark bits of, yeah, I'm walking the walk, yeah, I'm, I'm doing the things, I'm going on the mission trips, but actually in my heart, this is about me. This is about my gain. Jesus knows this about Judas. He knows what Judas is going to do. He knows that Judas has been given money in order to betray him, that Judas is the one who is going to set in motion that journey to his sacrifice on the cross. And yet, what does Jesus do during this Passover meal when Judas is there? What happens in the Passover meal? Can we remember what what are some of the things that Jesus does during the Passover meal? You can join in with this bit, guys. He, He shed. Yeah, when he breaks the bread and he passes around the cup, he doesn't say, right, here you go, you can have it. Oh, but you're not allowed it because you're going to betray me. No. He offers that, my body broken for you, broken for you, Judas. He offers it to Judas. There's something else he does earlier in the meal that's not actually in Luke chapter 2. We have to nip over to John's gospel for this one. Can anyone remember what the other, how Jesus shows his servant heart to them? He washes their feet. He washes Judas' feet because he did it to all of them. That offer of that, that servant sacrifice of Jesus is there. Jesus knows that Judas has decided to betray him. He knows what he's going to do, but he still offers himself as a servant. I've come to wash your feet, Judas. I've come for my body to be broken for you, Judas. He still makes that offer. As I was preparing this week, I think the the word that Taya brought last week about those dark places that we keep hidden or something, and that being open to allowing Jesus to search us and see that. I'm so encouraged by this. You know, if Judas, who had gone that far, if Judas, who was the one who was actually going to lead the centurions to Jesus, who was actually going to be paid to set that process in motion for Jesus' death, if even he was offered in person by Jesus, I will wash your feet. This is my body broken for you. Can't we trust Jesus with the dark places in our hearts? Can't we trust him not to turn us away with whatever we're keeping inside there? I was reminded, I I think it came up last week, Psalm 139 towards the end says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We can pray that in confidence, knowing that we're not going to be rejected. What does Judas do, though? Jesus is going to make that sacrifice. And he's offered it to him. But if we jump forward in the story, in in another gospel, Matthew chapter 27, it tells us, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, 
he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Great, sounding good. He's seen the error of his ways. I've sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us, they replied. It's your responsibility. Thanks, guys. So Jesus threw the money into the temple and left. So did I say Jesus? (laughs) Good thing we've got some heresy monitors here this morning, isn't it, folks? (laughs) So Judas (laughs) threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. And it tells in Acts chapter 1, it describes what happened to Jesus. It says that he acquired a field and fell headlong and his guts burst out. For for those of you who like to get into the the nitty-gritty of, well, hang on, what actually happened, one of the theories is that actually the the money that he returned to the temple priest was used to buy said field, hence Judas, by default, bought the field. He hung himself above said field, was left there um, fermenting for a while, such that when the rope snapped and he fell, his guts burst open and went everywhere. There, Well, we'll move on from that, shall we? That was pleasant. He didn't have a happy end in summary. Judas realized that he'd gone wrong. He regretted what he'd done. Good start. You know, we all reach that point, hopefully, where we realize, what have I done? What have I done? I was wrong. I got it so wrong. But what did he do about it? He tried to put it right. He tried to give back the money. But as we all discover, we can't undo what we've done, can we? When we've messed up, we've messed up. He couldn't put it right himself. That's why we need the sacrifice that Jesus made, because we can't put it right. But Judas, for whatever reason, didn't get that. He didn't see that. And instead, he condemned himself. He saw his failure as a fatal flaw, that there was no hope. But Jesus offered the bread to him. Jesus washed his feet. When we realize we've messed up, let's turn the right way in that. Let's turn to Jesus. Not feeling we've we've got to fix it all ourselves, because we can't. We turn to him. But the thing is, you have a choice in all this. Being a disciple is a choice, and Jesus will let you turn away from him. It's our choice. But, as we saw with Jesus, actually, it's that kind of weird thing that, yes, what Judas did was not good, but Jesus used it for his purpose, because actually Jesus needed to go to the cross to save us all. I think we need to look at Peter now, really, don't you? Feeling a bit, whew, there. Let's consider Peter then. Peter the super enthusiastic, isn't he? He's the real energizer bunny of the disciples. He's the one who's willing to step out. He's the first one to get in there. When they were um, in the boat and they saw Jesus walking towards them on water, Peter's the one who goes, hey, I'm going to come and walk on the water with you, God. He's the one who's always in there. 
But have any of us ever, like Peter, experienced that time? Yeah, we're super enthusiastic. I'm going to go on the mission trip. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then it hits the critical moment. And we completely stuff it up. Yeah? Anyone relate to that? Yeah, not just me. Yeah. So Peter, whose heart is absolutely there, but he does mess up. Now, it says in verses 31 to 34, let me just find them again. Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. I think a key thing there, when we think about Satan entering Judas earlier, notice how it says Satan has demanded or asked to sift you like wheat. Satan has to ask to do that, okay? He can't do it without permission. But he's going to sift them, sift them like wheat, see if he can whittle out some of them. What happens when we sift things? I thought I needed to bring a sieve for an illustration this morning. Here's our sieve. Um, Andrew, come and assist. Never sit near the front. Oh, sorry, do sit near the front. I promise if you sit near the front in future, I won't make you do embarrassing things at the front, honest. Sorry. Ah, that's what it is. That's what it is. Right, hold that. So all you're doing is catching. Worry not. Okay, I have raided. Okay, big sacrifice here for you this morning. I've raided my stockpiling for coronavirus isolation here. And I've got my flour and my rice out of my stockpile. Okay, so when we sift stuff, I've got rice and flour in here, all nicely mixed up together. Um, Kezia, you're going to have to come and hold the sieve a minute. <clears throat> no, I don't trust you. Okay. <laughs> Nothing personal. All right, so if I put my mixture... Ooh, 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 ooh. Ah, this bag has handles that's catching all the bits... Okay, so here we are sifting this mixture. Now, to sift it, I'm going to bash it a bit. It's all right, we've got a hoover, it's fine. I'm going to bash it. I might shake it up a bit. Satan asked to sift the disciples, to bash them up a bit, to shake them. But what determined whether they fell through or not? You see... I could look right now and say to the rice and the flour, hold tight, hold on tight. Is that going to help them if they hold tighter? Not really, is it? If I spit on it. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's going to ruin the analogy, Lydia. We'll not go there. What determines what falls through as I bash and shake, isn't how tight it's holding on, is it? It's the size of the holes, or more importantly, the size of the material. Right, that'll do. I'm just going to stick it all in there. That ruins the analogy, but that's not what happened. Okay, point one. Thank you very much. (laughs) 
how tight they hold on isn't what stops them falling through. It's in the nature of the thing that determines whether it falls through, how big it is. And that's what it's like when we're sifted. It's not how tight we hold on in that moment when we're shaken up. That's not what determines whether we fall through the sieve. It's in the, already in the nature of who we are. Look at Peter for a moment. In that passage we just read, why does Peter not fall through the sieve? If you read the passage again, it says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Why doesn't he fall through the sieve? Because Jesus has prayed for him. And that, I think, is a bigger picture of what Jesus does for all of us. Romans 8, verse 34 says, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. For us, Jesus is standing there in front of God and saying, they're not condemned. They are forgiven. Their sin is on me. When you look at them, you see my righteousness. And that's what stops us falling through the sieve. Not our ability to perform in a moment of crisis, but Jesus standing for us. Jesus praying or interceding for us before God. As Jesus stands for us, we cannot fall through the sieve. He's got us safe. So do we have any responsibility in this then? Do we have any responsibility? And it comes down to what we do when we've failed. Because Jesus also in that little bit said to to Simon, or to Peter, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus has prayed that Peter's faith may not fail. Doesn't mean he's not going to mess up. He is going to mess up. But he will turn back. And Peter took hold of that. And when he saw it, it says when he realized that moment the cock crowed, he wept bitterly as he realized what he'd done. Just like Judas was devastated when he realized what he's done. But Peter went back to Jesus. He went back to Jesus. And in fact, he didn't go back to Jesus to the bottom of the pile, feeling small and inadequate. It says, when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Failing and turning back doesn't write you off. There's still a job for you. Jesus still has a plan for you. It's not a case of, you've messed up, now you're back to being a junior disciple again, and you've got to earn your way back up through the ranks. No. Jesus still has a job for you to do. I just want to jump forward a little bit in the story. This is a slight tangent, but I just felt it was significant. That bit when they're in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is praying, and the disciples, it says that they'd fallen asleep. They were sleeping for sorrow. 
I wonder if any of us can relate to that. You know, this has been an intense day for the disciples, yeah? All of this teaching, whether they knew exactly what was going to happen, I don't know, but I think they had a sense that things were about to get dramatic and they're trying to understand what's going on, what's this about? And when we're in that place, we should be praying our socks off, shouldn't we, frankly? But if you ever found when you're in that place, actually, you just want to curl up in a ball and sleep because it's too much. And the one thing I want to take note is, yeah, we should be praying. We should be praying. But even if we've curled up in a ball and gone to sleep, Jesus is still praying. He's still praying. Even when we can't, he's still working through that anguish on our behalf. Now, I want to talk about swords. If you remember, Jesus talks to them and he says to them, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. And the disciples say, hey, look here, we've got two swords. And he says, that's enough. And then when the centurions arrived to take him, and one of them, and it tells us in one of the other Gospels, it's actually Peter who gets one of said two swords that Jesus said they would need and chops off the ear of the centurion. And then Jesus seems to not be very happy with him about this and says, no, 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 no. No more of this. Well, what? He's told them they need swords. Oops, hang on. He's told them they need swords, and then when they go to use them in the critical moment, he tells them not to. What's going on there? I think when Jesus said they needed to be equipped with swords, he was making it clear to them they were entering a battle. And you need to be equipped for a battle. But I don't think he was talking about literal swords here. Clearly, he didn't want them to use literal swords, because when they did, he said, whoa, stop. And certainly, if if when they said, see, here's two swords, and he says, yep, that's enough. Well, no, two swords aren't enough to fight that whole crowd that were coming at them. So clearly, that's not quite right there, is it? They need to prepare to fight a spiritual battle with spiritual swords. Notice how quickly, when, when the centurions come, they say, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And then they strike with their swords. Did, did they wait for the answer there? No. But a li- little bit of wisdom for you. If you ask for God's advice, wait for the answer before you then do the thing. Okay? Yeah? Don't assume the answer. Wait for the answer. We're so quick to jump to physical action without checking in on the spiritual battle first. They need to be spiritually equipped to fight a spiritual battle. And what's the best weapon to fight a spiritual battle? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not going to read this. There's so much of a passage we could read here, but in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. And the contrast we see between this passage we've read today and what we see of Peter in particular in Acts chapter 2 is is just amazing. Suddenly, he's speaking boldly in front of these people who are accusing him of being drunk. 
He's not afraid to challenge the people and correct them. Whereas before, he was denying that he even knew Jesus. Now he's not afraid to challenge these other people. All of a sudden, they get what Jesus was teaching them. All of this stuff he'd been saying, they were clearly getting the wrong end of the stick. Suddenly, they understand it, and they're able to explain it to other people. They're quoting God's word just like that and applying it. The impact of what they do in the power of the Holy Spirit is massive. But where I want us to pause today is just on accepting this fact that we are flawed. We are flawed, but that we are forgiven and we are fueled by the Spirit. You know, when we work in our own strength, we do get it wrong. We mess up. We're going to. And Jesus knows all of that. Jesus knows every single mess up that you are ever going to make. It might come as a shock to us when we suddenly realize what we've done. Jesus already knew about it. He's not shocked. He's not surprised. He knew it was coming. And yet still, he offers his sacrifice to us. We're forgiven, and all we have to do is turn around and jump right back in there with him. And when we do, the power of the Spirit changes everything. I'd like us to finish by thinking of Peter. So Peter, we'd left him having just realized his mistake. Just realized that, just like Jesus said, he messed up. And then, on Easter Sunday morning, it tells the women went to the tomb first and saw the empty tomb. They come back. And when Peter hears about this, he's one of the first to run to that tomb to see. He comes running back. And that's the place I want us to be in this morning. So, Band, could, you, could we do Living Hope again? Maybe, please, Band. I just want to invite us. As it said in one, Psalm 139, to feel safe to say to God, search me, God. Know my anxious thought. See what's inside me, God. Is there anything within me that isn't right, Lord? Challenge me in that. And as we have that openness, and as we perhaps are aware of the times we've messed up, to recognize we don't need to try and put it right in our own strength. We don't need to feel hopeless and despair like Judas did, that I've messed it up. I can't put this right. We can just turn back to Jesus and receive that sacrifice that he gave us. And we don't come back to him at the bottom of the stack. We come back to him as a disciple who is loved, who he has a purpose for, who he wants to use for his glory. So as we just close in worship, let's, let's invite God to examine our hearts and let's come to him feeling safe and secure. He doesn't turn us away. We can jump right back in with him.